This podcast was originally recorded for DevChat TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another podcast, another episode of Sustain Our Software. Here we talk about all of the things regarding open source sustainability. Our goal with this podcast, it was uh, spawned off of an idea at Sustain Summit in 2018. The goal of the podcast is to take all of the things that were talked about there and all of these topics that people are very passionate about and want to share, but don't have a venue to do so. That's what this podcast is for. So we hope that you enjoy it. We hope that with every single one of our episodes, you're learning more about open source, more about the problems that we face as a community and ways that we can make it better. Today on our panel, we have Richard Litauer. Yo. Myself, Eric Berry, and our special guest today is Abigail Kubunok Mays. Abigail, how are you? I'm good. Did I get that right? Pretty close. Kubunok, yeah. Abby Kubunok Mays. Awesome. (laughs) The thing that I believe most about top notch developers is that they're constantly learning. Whether you're out watching videos, whether you're reading blog posts or books, whether you're out writing open source software, you're always out there learning how to be a better developer. And my friends at Thinkster and I teamed up and we put together a show called the DevEd Podcast. You can find it at devedpodcast.com. It's run by Joe Eames, who you might know from JavaScript Jabber, Adventures in Angular, and Views on View. And they have terrific conversations about what it means to become a better developer, to learn how to do development, and the ways that you can learn. So if you're looking for inspiration and ideas about how you can do better and learn better as a developer, then go check out the DevEd Podcast. Abigail, you work for the Mozilla Foundation. You're a uh, practice lead and you're working in open. Uh, I don't know exactly what that means, but you were named in the 100 most awesome women in open source. And also you were mentioned in GitHub's State of the Octaverse in 2016. You've got quite a resume. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks for looking me up and seeing all the fun things I put on my website. Absolutely, absolutely. Sorry for the ding there. I <laughs> forgot to mute. So we have you on today to talk about the Mozilla Foundation and where they're at with open source. But you have a fascinating background. I'd like to first have you share that with our audience. I read your blog about your grandmother. I was wondering if you could just recap that and recap what you found in the uh, medical community with open, with open data. I'd, I'd love to hear that story from you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I have a background in bioinformatics and computer science. And I was really lucky at the beginning of my career. I've, I've always been really interested in using computer science to solve the problems we see in biology or in medicine. My first job out of school was um, working at a cancer research institute. You referenced that blog post, but that was really meaningful work for me. The idea that I was helping someone else's family, like my grandmother had passed away from cancer. So it it was nice that I was giving back to the medical community. And I was really fortunate that the first lab I worked in Lincoln Stein, he's a big advocate for open science and open source. He's written a ton of open source for the bioinformatics community. And working there, I saw how much that really helped researchers sort of discover more by sharing the software. And then on top of that, like sharing the data, people were like finding really cool things about our bodies and about, um, yeah, about cancer. And we're able to like have discoveries and find good therapies that were helpful. But yeah, the longer I was in academia, the more I realized that like not every lab was like the one I was in. It's really common for people to sort of hide their results or, and keep it a, a secret until they're ready to publish or even fudge it a little bit just so they can get the better results and get tenure and get published in a better place. So yeah, the longer I was there, the more I realized like there's something, <laughs> something wrong happening in academia. Then I really cared about open science and really using the web 
to further science and this idea that the web helps us share data much faster than any journal could was really exciting because I think that's what the scientific revolution was. It was people realizing that they can write down what they're discovering in a, in a journal, which was the fastest way to get information around. And then other people can find that and build off it. And that's why we had so many discoveries in the, during that scientific revolution. It's so much more efficient now with the internet, but it hasn't quite caught up yet. I don't know if that would made sense, but yeah, that's, yeah, that's why I care about open science. That's interesting. So how long has open science been a thing? Oh, I'm, I'm actually not sure. A well, it while. depends on what you yeah. mean by open science, right? Yeah. So uh, open science <laughs> has been people sharing their journals since the 1800s. Whether or not that's locked in the monastery counts as open source, I don't know what clerical <laughs> licenses look like. But then as far as the open science movement, there's been a lot of sharing going all the way back to, I mean, a lot of the stuff at Bell Labs, a lot of stuff at MIT yeah. was actually shared. Um, more recently in the past couple of decades, I mean, the Open Knowledge Foundation has done a lot of good work with sharing things. And mm-hmm. part of that has been open science. Are, are you involved with them at all, Abigail? Open Knowledge Foundation? They come yeah. to MozFest, the Mozilla Foundation, like every... Every few years. So I've done some work with them, yeah. So when we say open science, are we talking about an actual company or something called open science or just the general genre of science that's also open? Yeah, I'm thinking of the movement around open science. I think a lot of that was inspired by the open source movement, just seeing how open source really took off and thinking like, oh, why don't we apply this to research, which which originally was quite open, um, but it's gotten a bit closed over the years. Yeah. How did you go from doing bioinformatics open science work to working at Mozilla? Yeah, so um, about five years ago, I saw these tweets from the Mozilla Science Lab, and their mission was all about, yeah, furthering science on the web. And it's like, that's, that's what I care about, and that's what I do. So I started volunteering with them, and then eventually joined as a lead developer for Mozilla Science. So I was writing a lot of prototypes to sort of, um, yeah, further open science, or using the web for science. Things like, um, yeah, getting a a DOI or digital object identifier for your code. So that way you can cite it. So making code a little bit more of a research object or something that you can actually put in your resume. Because a lot of scientists who are writing code, you need a lot of it to make discoveries nowadays, but they weren't getting credit for it or it, it didn't matter when it came to tenure. So, like so you're talking about alt, alt metrics here. Oh yeah, alt metrics. Yep. Cool. Can you describe what wow. those are? Richard knows so many words from this world. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, just, I just start the podcast and he runs through. And I'm going to go get a coffee. I'll be back. <laughs> that's, that's not fair. That's not fair. I used Stay to be here. involved with open science as well. So it's, oh, awesome. It's, I didn't even know that. Yeah. I didn't know you for a while. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very dear to my heart. Um, yeah. DOIs are fascinating because uh, digital object identifiers are used mm-hmm. for all journal articles. Yes. Um, basically. And that way you can say what version you're pointing to and the like. But what ends up happening, um, the reason I bring up altmetrics mm-hmm. is because a lot of people in academia need to basically publish or perish. So they need yeah. to publish papers or else they don't get continued on their contracts with their universities or with their labs. Unfortunately, publishing code doesn't normally count towards the ethics review or the committee review that goes through these papers and looks at, hey, how important is this person? Mm-hmm. What only really counts is what journals have they published in and have those been cited a lot. So it sounds like, Abigail, what you were working on is making it easier for people to actually publish code and get recognition for that from their various institutions? Yeah, so helping people get recognition for that. And we, did, we tried a couple of things. We made some badges for that, um, little things with Zenodo, but also just helping them write code in the first place because a lot of scientists, like, they never were formally trained. So just helping them with the basics of that. And then that shifted to me teaching the scientists how to write open source software for their research. 
And that's when I got into like teaching open leadership or this idea that how do you run a project in a way that enables collaboration? Because we found a lot of researchers where we had these cool projects they're working on and there were a lot of developers who wanted to help them, but they didn't make it easy for people to help them do the work. So what I'm curious about, and I, I may sound stupid here, I have Firefox installed on my computer, mm-hmm. and that's what I think of when I think of Mozilla. Yes. It doesn't sound like you're talking about the browser. So how, how is Mozilla the umbrella under which you do this mm-hmm. work? So Mozilla's mission is to ensure that the internet is a global public resource, open and accessible to all. And if you remember like the browser wars back in the early 2000s, there was a danger that Microsoft was really going to take the building blocks of the internet and and not share it and not make it open and accessible. So Mozilla came in with Firefox and that was their way of disrupting the market there and sort of taking back the web for the people. And over time, I think like we've seen the browser was like, it's no longer a monopoly right now um, in the browsers. So Mozilla approaches this a couple ways. There's like the building products to ensure that. So we mentioned Thunderbird before we started recording uh, Firefox, yep. but then also the mich- like the movement, feeling the movement of people who are doing this. So I work on the Mozilla Foundation side, which really is that movement focus. So I started working with the, like the scientists, but my role shifted. And then we're, I'm working like with all the different people that are part of this movement that want a healthy internet that anyone can access. So it's scientists, it's um, people doing open hardware, open source, it's uh, newsrooms, it's arts, yeah. So that's a massive field because scientists itself could apply yes, to sure. all humans who use the scientific <laughs> method. So how do you how do you narrow down? Like, what are you working on now? How have you chosen these various mm-hmm. factions to work with? So what I'm working on now is um, really like thinking about the movement. I'm working on investing in the people who are leaders in the movement. And I think these are the people who are like building the software that will help us have a healthier internet or they're yeah, a lot of us people building software or just running an open project or running the events that are like getting people aware about this and bringing people there. So uh, I'm working a lot with like um, the Mozilla Festival, which is our annual event that's really meant to be a convener for the entire movement in London. The thing that I think about when I, when I think of Mozilla is something that I'm very passionate about myself and seems to be more and more relevant to what I do on a daily basis, which is advertising, is uh, the privacy aspect. Mm-hmm. It seems that Mozilla has taken and owned essentially the privacy. And that's excluding the Brave browser, which we can, I mean, that's a whole different discussion. But mm-hmm. it seems that Firefox has decided that they're going to basically do the opposite of what Google does and say, we actually care about our, our customers as people, as humans versus as products. And that's probably bad to say, but, but no. I, I, I am in this world where I do see what happens and, and it's unfortunate. You know, I still use Google Chrome because it's just easier. It's basically a habit. No, for I me. understand. Yeah. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it seems like Mozilla is hyper-focused on providing tooling for their users to, to retain their privacy. Can you tell me more about that? Do you see that? Yeah, there are issues in the world today that are preventing us from getting to a healthy internet. So one of them is privacy and security, another one's openness, decentralization, web literacy, and digital inclusion. And I think for privacy and security specifically, like we want to be building things where we care about the people. We're on your side. I'm actually not super familiar with Firefox's decisions around this, but I know that they're very conscious around like how they're getting money and what partnerships they make and how, how do we do this in a way that benefits the user and it's not just us profiting from the user. 
which is what you see happening with like Google, with even just even things like YouTube, where they're profiting from you staying and watching more. And that like autoplay algorithm gets more and more radical information is being shown because you stay there and watch it longer. So like, how can we gather data in a way that really serves the user and helps them and not, not just us? So it's a big conversation. I don't think anyone's really solved it. And it's always a little tricky that line between privacy and security and openness, because we do want to be open, but we do also want to be private, like you to be safe online. Yeah. That's also true a lot for science, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, whether you want stuff to be open or not, especially for like clinical studies or endangered species tracking. Do you run across a lot of people in a lot of labs who don't want to open source their work? Yes, for sure. <laughs> and I think especially with things like patient data, I used to work with a lot of patient data. I'm like, you have to be really careful with that. And even if you de-identify the data, there's always an outlier that, that you can identify. <laughs> you can always tell like, oh, there was only one person in that area that had cancer that year. Of course, it's that person. So when you're releasing data, it's always tricky Understanding like there's a difference between people not wanting to share their data in order to protect the patient and not wanting to share their data to help their own careers. So it's, it's finding the difference between that and then encouraging people to share what they can and encouraging people to share in a way that benefits science overall, but still protects people's anonymity and their own personal data. Awesome. I want to get more a bit onto what you do with suppose what Mozilla yeah. does, because we could sit and talk about Mozilla all day. Oh, by the way, is it Mozilla or Mozilla? Mozilla. Okay, because like Eric's, Eric's saying it's like like it's mozzarella, so I'm just kind of confused. You know what? You can't change me. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, but you're pretty cheesy. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you do like leadership stuff. Mm-hmm. How do you find people and then train them to be leaders if they're not already leaders in the community? Sometimes it's identifying them. Like you find people who you think could be good leaders in the community. When I'm doing like a formal training, there is an application process. So most of the people there already see themselves as leaders or I'm training our fellows. So we do have a fellowship program at the Mozilla Foundation where we like pay people for a year to like be open web advocates or to write that open source software or write that open science software that's needed in the world. But it's like hard to get paid to do. (laughs) So a lot of it's training these people how to do that, because I think like open source, it does have like a very specific definition around a license, but the benefits of open source come from the community and being able to bring together this group of people um, to work on the same problem and let people like take that and remix it and then build upon it. So teaching people like how to bring together a community and build and sustain a community in a way that they can make the best product possible. It's really been, yeah, I know. I like it. It's really important. Yeah, it's totally important. Um, <laughs> This is one of the things I really love about like Jupyter Notebooks, right? Mm-hmm. So J- Jupyter Notebooks came out as a way of sharing Python code effectively and easily with DOIs for mm-hmm. people doing science. Does that sound about right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so there's a few people in the industry who are really awesome at doing that. So one of them is like Carl Bertiger and Karthik Ram from ROPSI. Yeah. These guys are obsessed with working in the open, having like all of their published stuff yeah. open, all their pre-published stuff open, all of their <laughs> R things everywhere. Yeah. I'm curious, do you know of other people like that? Who like Who's like a shiny beacon of like how to do science awesomely and greatly that you've oh, worked man. with or heard of? Well, even just from that same circle, there's like Titus Brown, Chris Holdgraf, Tim Head. <laughs> I'm just naming people who know each other. Um, but <laughs> That's kind of how open source works, right? It's always like this mesh network that sort of leads towards these pinnacles of people who are super connectors. Yeah, there's um, Christy Whitaker. Is that her last name? Yes, I'm sorry, Kirsty, if I got that wrong. But she was one of the first um, Mozilla Fellows for Science. And I think 
that first cohort, especially, like we were trying to find people who are doing what you said and really leaders in the space. And then also people who see the need for this movement and are ready to invest in either like their local community or their institution, but like give back to, to help onboard new open scientists. Which is super cool. So are you the one who actually runs that program or are you just a mentor in it? I've been running Mozilla Open Leaders the past couple of years. Um, we've changed it a bit this year. So right now I'm teaching people how to run their own versions of Mozilla Open Leaders. We have a group that's running one just for life science, which is interesting. Another mm-hmm. one for like open innovation research, another one for open source specifically, because I've run into problems where I'm running this very broad open leadership program, but then people would feel like, oh, it's like, oh, I'm the only one with a science project. I don't think I fit in here. And the lessons were always very, very abstract. And it was hard for them to apply it to what they were doing, especially if it looked like maybe it's like an open educational resource. But I think it's still important for you to be like onboarding new contributors and like mentoring them to become leaders. Very much so. Um, is that mostly on the ground in Toronto where you are? No, so it's an online program. So um, I don't have any stats memorized, but it's in a lot of countries and we meet online every two weeks normally. That is super cool. Can you describe the process of like going through this program? How could I apply? I'll talk through the regular one, uh, not the one I'm doing now that teaches other people how to do it. But generally, it's 14 weeks of online mentorship and training. So during the 14 weeks, you're paired with a mentor who you meet with one-on-one every two weeks. And you start with some goal setting at the beginning. And then your mentor just checks up with you on your roadmap, seeing how far you've gotten and where you need to tweak if you need any help. And we have cohort-based training. So the entire group will come together in an online call. And we'd go through some basics like how to design for participation or how to empower others in your project. And for like open source, that would look like how to write a good readme, how to write contributing guidelines, how to pick a license. But for other places, it looks like a little different depending on what kind of project you're bringing. We do that for about 10 weeks and then we give them some sort of practical experience. So we try to line it up with something like the Mozilla Festival or Hacktoberfest or the Global Sprint or something where people can actually practice working open on their project and actually have contributors show up to their project That way they can see if, like, do their contributing documents work or like, yeah, (laughs) and actually practice this. And then at the end, when they're done, we invite them to come back and mentor others. So that way we're training people in a way that they want to come and train others. That sounds awesome. What I love about it is that it's not just focused on open source, but it's focused on open source as being part of a larger community, like a global community of information sharing in general of how do we not keep stuff in closed boxes, but actually mm. share it bright, like broadly, which is not a perspective we've had a lot on this podcast. Most people in this podcast are like mono repo type. Yeah. I'm a maintainer. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Open source is everything. No, I'm not using GPL. But you're more like, well, yeah, licensing is just one part of it. But what's more is like, how do we foster openness? Yeah. And even just thinking to like Mozilla's mission, it's it's a really big mission. Like how can this internet be this, this resource for all? And it's going to need more than just software developers to get there, I think. Like we need the policy people, we need the educators. And I think that's why I like to focus on like the, the broad spectrum of leaders we have in this movement to give them these skills so that we can reach this mission or see a healthy internet. So you mentioned this program that seems extremely beneficial, but I imagine that getting approved to get in, I mean, there's got to be a short list, but the information that you're talking about is so valuable to the community. Mm-hmm. Where can somebody go to learn what is being taught in these courses? 
So we do have this open leadership training series. It's on GitHub. Some of it's a bit outdated, but it's still mostly there. I can get put a link in the chat. And we'll put those in the show notes. As always, we have show notes with links to everything, everyone. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's interesting because this is something that is so appealing to me and I imagine so appealing to so many people, but the time limitations and the commitment level that it would take are prohibitive. Mm -hmm. I also pasted in the open leadership framework, which is less about a specific project, but more general leadership skills. So we've been incorporating more and more of that as um, yeah, as we've gone through Open Leaders. Fantastic. And for those who are um, listening who aren't behind a computer, it's the website is mzl.la slash OLF. Fantastic. This is, uh, you seem so proactive in this. And as you guys have been talking, I've just been going through your blog articles. And, and one of the things that I'd like to ask you, which is more of a general question, but I'm, I'm kind of uh, expecting that you're going to smile when I ask you this is, what does openness mean to you? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The reason I asked that is because you wrote a blog post on it. I did. I did. We had a blog series, um, our team, the Open Leadership and Events team, because we were starting to think about really fueling the movement and really starting to move our thinking from just teaching people how to be open to how does this affect the broader internet health movement or how can we be using this effectively and how do they work together with each other? And for me, I think openness and movement building are really similar. It's like a way to rally people together around something and empower them to to work towards a shared goal or have this shared goal. So it's it's pretty interesting. And I realized I wrote a blog post about this. <laughs> what does openness mean to you? And in the post, I did quote our Mozilla wiki, <laughs> where it talks about working open as being both public and participatory. So public meaning like anyone can see it. Everyone can see what's happening and access it, but then participatory, they can actually help you do this. So rather than just me like building something that anyone can take and use, they can like actually become insiders and part of the community. Back when we were starting up new shows, one of the shows that got started was Views on View. And one of the things that was really fun about that is that I got to know a bunch of really terrific people in the View community. And furthermore, one thing that happened that really hadn't happened on any of the other shows, we actually got a member of the core team to come on as a regular panelist on the show. We have Chris Fritz on there. The other thing is, is you may recognize some of the other voices. Ben Hong, who's on the official View News podcast, is also a panelist on the show. He's worked for Politico and now works for GitLab. We also have a bunch of other terrific panelists that come on and talk to you about what's going on in the View community. And because they're so closely tied to View and they talk to people about View all the time, they're very up-to-date and very knowledgeable about what's going on in the Vue community. So if you're looking for a way to learn Vue.js, or if you're looking for a way to stay current with Vue.js and kind of have the water cooler conversations you wish you could have about it in places where maybe they're not using it, then definitely check it out. You can find it at viewsonview.com. That kind of reminds me of the contributor pyramid where you sort of go from users to people logging issues to collaborators to maintainers. Mm -hmm. um, so becoming an insider in open science and open innovation mm -hmm. is very similar in the sense that we have widening circles of participation. That's something I've been thinking about a lot recently, actually, as I've started to put together more like movement building training. But thinking about, uh, we've been calling it the mountain of engagement, <laughs> where people are like coming in from the bottom of the mountain and working their way up. But whenever you're trying to sustain a community, and this is something I learned when I was working with student clubs, <laughs> Uh, when I was uh, in university. But if you ever have a year where you don't get any first years joining your club, 
four years it, later, it you're does. not going to have a club. <laughs> yeah. There's no, or you're forcing far too junior people into leadership and it doesn't work. And like churn isn't as drastic here in like the real world, but this idea that like to sustain a community, you need to constantly be bringing new people in at the bottom of this pyramid or this mountain, but then also giving them nice pathways to work up. I actually would disagree with your statement. Change isn't as drastic. It's much more drastic. It's just longer. So for instance, there's a really good article that came out like 10 years ago. It's a science journal where some sociologists compared being an academic and trying to become a PhD and then trying to get a lectureship and then trying to get tenure. Yeah. It was exactly the same format as drug gangs where you have a lot of people like running drugs and then you have people yeah. above them who distribute and then people above them who actually make decisions. And the, the odds of you being like a, a street runner Becoming like a drug lord is basically nil in the same way. The odds of you like entering like as an undergraduate and doing like, I'm going to do computer science and I'm going to end up being the next, you know, Alan Kay or something. Yeah. Very low, which is really unfortunate. That's quite a comparison. I'd never. No, it, was, it was fascinating. It was like this yeah. amazing article. And it, one of the reasons I left academia, I just couldn't keep. Yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> Continue. I, I don't do drugs. Just saying. One of the things that's really interesting to me about that is you say openness has to be participatory. One of the ways that we fight massive erosion on the the mountain of engagement, you're yeah. saying, right? Yeah, so that can calling it, yes. Yeah, we fight mudslides and we keep it being more of a pillar, mm-hmm. I guess, where everyone can get involved at any level is participation and is actually being open and saying, I need help and being collaborative and not vying for the same resources at higher tiers. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is a bit abstract and it, it will, you know, not trickle down to every single possible use case. But <laughs> I don't know. That that's what came up to me. I don't have a question there. Well, it just makes me think of delegation and just how important it is, like if you are a leader, to just be entrusting parts of the project with other people in the group. Even if they're not quite ready for it yet, you're there as like a safety net and just be ready to hand off hand off things and just design projects and design programs in a way where you aren't assuming that you're gonna be there forever. I think that's the the idea of sustainability. Like you assume that you're going to be gone at some point. And you see this in corporations. They always have like that um, succession planning. Not always, but people are talking about like who's going to take over the company next. But we don't always talk about that in open source projects. I always thought it was interesting. Well, that's kind of what we're trying to say when we say docs, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because the whole idea is that if you write good docs, you can leave and people don't have to ask you questions. Yeah, it's written down. JavaScript's a really interesting use case because JavaScript used to be a fringe language. Now it's used in every browser. Browsers are increasingly more important and now you have it natively and whatever, it's everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Problem is that the packages used to make JavaScript work have been built by a community that's now 10 years old. And the language isn't going away, but the maintainers who maintain those packages are. And so we're ending, we're entering this place where those packages are increasingly enter some sort of weird digital commons where they're not being stewarded and where any bug fixing can't happen to those. And forks are actually not really a viable solution most of the time because they don't get a lot of attention, right? Yeah. If I fork a package because I want to fix something, other people may still go to the other package just because it's more famous. And we end up with this inability to like iterate on our system and on our ecosystem level. Mm-hmm. And so... A lot of what you talk about with how do you sustain stuff and how do we uh, have an exit plan? So how do we make sure that our work is reproducible by other scholars who may want to look mm-hmm. at our scientific journals later and look at our code is directly applicable to open source and directly applicable to what happens when maintainers burn out or leave or switch languages or die or et cetera, et cetera, which happens. Does that sound about right to you? 
Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. Again, I didn't have, I don't a have anything to add. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You're both talking about maintainers stepping away. And it's interesting, some of the biggest projects that I'm aware of are famous, but they're being maintained by not the original creators, but, but new maintainers. Mm-hmm. Yep. What do you think leads a creator to leave a project? This is something that it's, it's more of kind of a, a, a simple question, but I'm, I'd love to hear your, your feedback on that. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons why maintainers leave. They, they get bored. Life gets in the way. Something else happens. They get a new job. They have a kid. There's a lot of reasons why people just get too busy or just get too distracted or forget about projects. And I think that's okay. It's okay that people move on. But I think it's important that when you're doing it, if you want this to keep going afterwards, like have a plan or plan for that. And we have seen people become new maintainers for projects. And sometimes it's because they were bold enough to be like, hey, I want to maintain this. And I think that you get a specific type of person who's, who has the, like, the privilege and the time to come and take something. When they see a gap, they'll just step into it. I think it's really powerful to bring new people into that role as you're leading a project. Like, can you, can you give that opportunity to someone who might not have actually stepped up and said, I want to maintain this, but who you think would be good for it. Sure. I don't know. I'm just, just some rambling thoughts. Earlier, you talked about essentially the art of delegation, yeah. teaching delegation. <laughs> to me, that's such a hard thing to learn. And I imagine with software developers, at least most of the developers that I know, when they come in, like they come into a new company and they're like, oh, we got to rewrite everything, right? This is all <laughs> crap. We're going to rewrite it all. And that's kind of the mentality that some, you know, a lot of these developers have. Mm-hmm. And I imagine they carry that into their projects where they have a sense of maybe dictatorship isn't the right word, but they just yeah. don't want to, they're very confident in their direction. Yeah. And so how do you teach somebody to delegate? How do you teach somebody to stop thinking that way and start thinking of how can I make this to where it can fly mm-hmm. outside of my own circle of influence? Yeah, and I think part of that is just helping them see the benefit of having a broader community working on the project and just how having diverse perspectives can really build something better than just one person can. And I think it's like that's not the case for every single project. If a project's really small, maybe you don't need a big community helping you build it. But if they do want a community, part of getting people to stick around is giving them ownership of different parts of the project. Like you can get bug fixes, but they're not going to stick around forever. They're they're not going to keep coming back unless they feel like they have ownership over something. And that means delegating. Do you find that for a open source project to become basically to like break the ceiling and, and become huge, it requires that? Or do you think that that's more of an optional thing? I think that's optional. It depends on what your goals are as an open source project. Mozilla published this open source archetypes a while ago. Version two is coming out soon, but it does talk about these common patterns that we see in open source. I think one of them is called wide open, where I, I do think that for that archetype, you do need a big community who is like coming together to work on something great. So like the Rust community is a good example of that and how, how Rust is so much better because they have this big welcoming inclusive community helping it. But on the other hand, you can have something like the rocket trip to Mars is what another one of the archetypes is called, where you have like maybe one or two people that are just hacking on something really quickly and they're building it fast. And in that case, like to get to that first prototype, I don't think you need a broad community working on it. But if your end goal is just shipping one prototype, that's great. But if you want something bigger, want something better, you might have to shift to another prototype and you might have to start inviting other contributors in. 
but it, yeah, it depends on the project. That's a fantastic document. You say the new version's coming out. The one that is, uh, is live right now is from May 2018. Do you know when the new one's coming out? Soon is what I keep being told. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here, folks. (laughs) By the time you're listening to this, it might be out. Yeah, check out the uh, show notes to find the the download link for this. It's a fascinating document, and and kudos to Modzilla Modzilla for for making this. (laughs) You're not going to change me. Yeah, and that was made in partnership with the Open Tech Strategies Group with, yeah, James Cecile and... um, another person. <laughs> you can read it in the link. Yeah, it looks like it was created by Open Text. Oh, Carl Fogel, yeah. Yeah, this very fascinating document. Thank you. I love it. It has helped me think through like the spectrum of openness. I don't think every project has to be wide open. And especially, occasionally I've worked with um, different companies or different people within a company trying to do an open project. And they have very different constraints than I'm, I'm used to. <laughs> And they can't just have something that's wide open. So helping them see that like there's advantages for these different types of openness and whether it's making something, building it in a closed fashion, but then making it free or just making it accessible for everyone to take, that, that's still an advantage. So you're talking about the non-fungibility of maintainers, of people running projects, of advice for different projects and how things go and it's different for everyone. Did you say yet, fungibility? Fungibility, Sorry. yeah. What, um, what is that word? You're using blockchain terminology. No, that's oh. not. Fungible, fungible is, a, is, I guess, it's originally a currency. It means that uh, any dollar is replaceable by another dollar. So therefore, okay. dollars are identical. So easily replaceable yeah. things. So people aren't easily replaceable, yeah. especially in projects like this, especially as in open source projects. The person who writes the project is going to be different than the person who takes it over later. Um, yeah. And it's going to have different context. But you also run a leadership program where you're trying to abstract away lessons that are useful towards everyone involved. And how do you abstract adequately without ending up being so high touch and having to like work with everyone for hours and hours at a time? Yeah, well, that's why we have the mentor layer. So it is abstracting a little bit too much, which is why I'm trying this OLX thing where we're teaching people to run more specific programs. But the idea is we we run a, a... fairly abstract lesson. And then the mentor is the one who can take that lesson and apply it to like open source specifically or open science specifically or whatnot. So normally the mentors will pick someone from a similar field as them and they've gone through this themselves. So yeah, that's how I do it. That makes sense. What were the different groups again? There was open science, there's open source, there's open innovation. Yeah. So open innovation for research. So that one's um, being run by eLife, which is interesting. How is that Um, not open science or open source? It's, it's, What's the difference? It's kind of both of them together. I think they do all overlap a little bit. But um, yes, there's 10 groups going through this round. I think there's also accessible online security. There's one around AI, like building healthier AI, which I think is interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to remember all 10 off the top of my head. That's okay. Yeah, they do overlap. I will admit that. Like AI will probably also overlap with open source, but people can choose which one they apply to or they can apply to both. So as you're running this, you also find the time to write really useful blog posts about what openness is. <laughs> Barely. Um, yeah, no, which, which are great. And you don't have to be able to cite them. The whole point of a written word is that it was eloquent once and you got to think about it. Whereas us asking you is by <laughs> that metric rude. So I'm curious, where can people find you on the internet? I'm Abby Cabs on Twitter, A-B-B-Y-C-A-B-S. A Kabunok on GitHub, A-C-A-B-U-N-O-C. 
Don't try Akapunak on Twitter. That's not me. Immediately goes to try. Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> cool. And what are you excited about going forward? What's what's up next besides the OLS program, which you already are excited about? We know. That. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, another thing I did want to mention on this podcast, I, I didn't yet. So I mentioned the fellowships program where we're paying people to like yep. do this work, which is really exciting. Um, there's also the MOSS awards. It's a Mozilla open source software funding. So like any open source technology that aligns with Mozilla's mission is eligible to apply, and they have rolling applications. They give out two million a year annually. I said a year and annually. It's fine. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I'd encourage people to apply if you're looking for like that kind. I know I focus more on community sustainability, but I realize that like financial is a big deal. So it's it's great working somewhere that's offering some sort of grants for open source software. Where do they go to apply? Um, Mozilla.org slash Moss. I have an awkward question. Hmm? So anything which is in line with Mozilla's mission combined with money, immediately raised red flags of like capitalism in my brain. And I know Mozilla has a really nice office underneath the Bay Bridge in San Francisco and has <laughs> able to like host things in the middle of downtown London. Yeah. Where is this money coming from again? So there's a few places. So I work on the foundation side where a lot of it's from grants. A lot of it's from our end of year fundraising campaign. On the corporation side, which is the side that builds most of the, like builds Firefox and builds most of our products. They did have that Yahoo deal for Yahoo to be the default search okay. for the browser. Verizon brought them out. I think they still have funding for a while on that, yep. based on that deal. And there, there's a lawsuit. Maybe I won't talk about that. But <laughs> So yeah. this is one of those companies where they split it into a foundation and then the corporate side, where corporate continues, occasionally funds foundation, but foundation has free reign to do what they want in the interest of like open awesomeness. I think so. Okay. I, not a lawyer, but also, yes. Yeah, so the foundation fully owns the corporation. Is that right? Anyway, so, but we own the trademarks for Firefox. Okay, cool. So we get yeah. paid by the corporation and the corporation side is able to accept funding from things like Yahoo for being the default search engine. And they do have search deals. I forgot. They have search deals with like Yandex and Russia, Baidu and China. And that's how they're funding right now. And they recently released, um, I think it's still in private beta, but the Firefox private network. So Firefox has like a comes with like a VPN and that's like a paid option. Yep. So you could that's another way they're trying to test out their funding model. When so uh, the reason I ask is like you know Yahoo a, a lot of ex Yahoo people go on to do things which aren't that great. Looking at NPM right now, and then there's also Baidu, which is possibly you know it's a large Chinese company and you don't become a large Chinese company without having some controversies. Mm-hmm. But the money you're saying for these fellowships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, isn't so necessarily part of those things it's just money no. which is earmarked i don't have to i don't have to sign away my soul i can just apply and maybe get money to do cool stuff yeah so the fellowships specifically have funding from like the ford foundation i believe um sloan foundation for the science fellowships no no helmsley for the science fellowships oh man <laughs> getting in for no it's okay I, I, <laughs> yeah. I was just curious i'm just curious yeah yeah and i yeah. could also go you know rejoin her back and say well Sloan is just oil money that's 100 years old, but that's just not useful anymore. So let's just move on. All money is tainted. But that's great. That's really cool. People should totally apply to that. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. 
I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show, and we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of The Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Let's talk about budgies. (laughs) (laughs) Budgies are great. Budgies are great. Little green birds. They're beautiful. Before we started recording, I was telling them that a budgie flew into the Mozilla office here in Toronto. And it's everyone is very excited. It's taken over my morning. It is very exciting. That's actually going to be my first pick. There's a Reddit thread. Uh, found someone's bird at Adelaide and Spadina, which everyone should check out. Uh, Spadina, Spadina? Spadina, yeah. Spadina. All right. Haven't been in Toronto in a couple of months. Um, With that everyone, being the case, maybe we should jump into picks. Yeah. So that's my first pick, the Reddit budgie pick. I'm sorry that A, I stole it from both of you, and B, that I mentioned evil capitalism to the point where we had to resort to colorful birds to make the conversation light again. I have two other picks this week. Second pick is this New York Times article, which came out yesterday. It's a huge study that's been going on from Cornell. The crisis for birds, the crisis for all of us. It's in a lot of other media outlets as well. We've lost 3 billion birds since 1970 in North America. That's 29% of our bird life. That's one out of every four blue jays. That's six out of every eight loggerhead shrikes and eastern meadowlarks. A massive amount of biodiversity loss and just general vertebrate loss in the world. And this is a real shame because birds are actually part of the linchpins of our global ecology. And this also goes along with the massive windshield effect happening right now where insect populations are dying off and the biomass of insects is just not around anymore. So if you want a very depressing morning, which is also very important, I would suggest you go read this article and just know about this. There is good news. Good news is raptors are up and also waterfowl. And the reason waterfowl is up is because hunters got together with conservationists, with legislators, and actually saved a lot of marshes, saved a lot of really important wetlands for geese and ducks over the past 50 years, to the point where waterfowl populations are actually up, which is fantastic. And so there is hope at the end of the tunnel. It is possible that things will get better. But as an avid birder myself, and as someone who enjoys wildlife, and as someone who enjoys living in this world, I highly suggest that you guys check out this article just probably just look for news and birds uh, it's also very relevant because of my third pick i was at the march earlier today in montpelier which was small short and sweet 500 people were there at least for the global climate strike today is september 20th i know this won't be released on september 20th but uh if you have a chance contact your local environmental group contact your local um cell for the extinction rebellion Keep the environment in your mind. And I know that we're all are already doing this already. Most of us in a depressing, oh no, it's all going to hell. I guess I'll make more hot chocolate and eat more Nutella kind of way. But still worth mentioning again. And I'm super proud that uh, people in my town at least showed up. People in Berlin, 100,000 people there today. So super cool. That's my third pick is the climate strike. So Eric, what do you got? Awesome. 
I have two picks today. The uh, first pick is something that I learned about, I think it was eight or nine years ago. I was at a conference and one of the speakers who closed up shared this video and just a snippet of the video, but the video is called uh, Project Code Rush. And it's a documentary about the beginnings of Netscape and how they became, how they open sourced Netscape. Fascinating, fascinating documentary. And it really came down to the wire. It was a very emotional, very gripping story. And it's so interesting. As, as a, a technologist, I can look back and say that point in time, that exact moment changed the direction of the future. It's a fantastic documentary you should watch. It's called Project Code Rush. And then my second pick is I'm speaking to all of these listeners with huge heads like I have. You're not saying, but I got a really big head, right? And it's hard to find glasses for big heads. Tell me so, about it. <laughs> anyway, so... I went over to, to get glasses and, and I found out that Shaquille O'Neal solved my problems. Shaquille O'Neal is amazing because he has a huge head like I do. And he, he made glasses. He had glasses made that fit big heads. So if you're like me and you have a big head, look to Shaquille O'Neal for better glasses. Those are my two picks. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Now, that Abigail, how about awesome. you? So I was thinking of picks while you were talking. So I may have missed what you said. Yeah, in honor of like the climate strike, um, I'm actually going to pick Chris Adams' blog. I'll put it in the chat. Chris went through Open Leaders a couple of rounds ago, and he was that was the first time I realized the environmental impact of the internet, just having these servers, and like the effect that has on yeah climate change. So yeah, plug in Chris Adam and his blog because he's done great work there, and even even around how to run sustainable events, he's done a lot of work on that too. My, my other pick is <laughs> I've been playing a lot of Stardew Valley. It's a video game. It's a farming sim. I've been playing it on the Switch. Yes. <laughs> that is my second pick, Stardew Valley. <laughs> Those are my two picks. <laughs> and that just came out for iOS. Oh, did I it? <laughs> awesome. Those are great picks. Fantastic. Abigail, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Appreciate your candor. Appreciate your budgie story. <laughs> it's been fantastic. We appreciate your time, and we look forward to uh, hearing more from you and, and seeing what Mozilla is up to next. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.